the name of Jesus, beautiful, but also powerful, such that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, we worship You today. Lord, as the song says, You have no rival. You have no equal. None. Many pretenders, but no contenders. Father, we thank You. We praise You for who You are, for what You've done in our lives. We pray that the name of Jesus would mark every beat of our hearts this day and throughout eternity. And it's in His precious name that we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. I'm excited about 2019. I know that sounds a little bit uh, along the lines of a New Year's thing, but it's, but it's not really because it was nearly 50 years ago, uh, in fact, this uh, July the 20th, so a month and uh, or so from now, that uh, Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon. And I, rem- I remember that day, and that night I gazed up at the moon, and I, and I looked, and I, I, I remembered Kennedy's promises, and I thought that at the same time that I'm standing here on earth, there's someone standing on the moon. For the first time, a human being was there at that very moment. So imagine the, uh, imagine the computers that it took to get to the moon, right? I mean, Apollo 11 must have been brimming with computer power. <laughs> well, truth be told, you, your average household appliance has more computing power than, uh, than Apollo 11 had. And uh, think about that the next time your washing machine skips a cycle. (laughs) The navigation, in fact, get this, the navigation computer that was used on Apollo 11, while handy, uh, it wasn't really particularly powerful. It was 64K. Yeah, not not gigabyte, uh, not megabyte, but, but kilobyte, right? And it had an astonishing speed of 0.0043. The truth is, is that little cell phone that some of you are looking at right now are the one that you could reach and pull in your pocket. has millions of times of more computing power than the spacecraft that landed man on the moon. I mean, consider this fact. Digital computers have only been around for about 70 years, yet today we're completely dependent on them. Yesterday, I, I uh, drove by, uh, there was in a parking lot in the, in the, uh, at an intersection, in the intersection, a woman slumped over her steering wheel. And I was uh, deeply concerned about that, so I stopped and I walked up and I, and I tapped on her window. And while she had her head on her steering wheel, underneath her steering wheel, she was holding her phone and and whatever it was that she needed to respond to had, had completely blocked everything from her, including her situational awareness as to where she was at and even her safety. She assured me she was okay 
she apologized for blocking the road and she she drove away. Most people use computers for gaming or for some form of excitement or making money, but you would not be surprised to learn that what actually drove the development of the computer was the survival of a nation. Prior to World War II, the Germans had invented a mechanical device that could encrypt so well that theoretically speaking, according to Alan Turing, that it would take a human being working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, 20 million years to cover all the permutations. That's pretty astonishing. There weren't enough mathematicians in the world to decipher a single message in real time. Turing argued that only a machine can defeat a machine. And so it was that Alan Turing and a number of other mathematicians worked relentlessly to crack that machine, known simply as Enigma. And the machines he and his colleagues built, then known as Turing machines, are known now to us as computers. Enigma. Now that's an interesting word if I've ever heard one. The very word springs up visions of what an enigma might be. You know, uh, uh, sometimes we refer to as a, per, a person as an enigma. They're a, a mystery. You never know what they're thinking, what they're uh, doing, what their motives are. But originally, enigma had nothing to do with uh, a person in terms of describing someone. It actually had to do with uh, words. Specifically, it was a riddle. So you could have an enigma that would be a riddle or a complicated metaphor, which, by the way, we have one uh, today, uh, that tested the, the listeners or readers' abilities, their alertness, their cleverness. So, okay, John, what does that have to do with our text? We're going to discover that it has everything to do with it. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll be looking, we'll read 8 through 12, but we're only going to be focusing on verse 12. That's in page 960 in the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 12. The controlling sentence is obviously the first sentence here. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Did you catch it? Did you catch what my whole opening was about? Probably not. It took me a couple of days of studying the passage to see it. You know, But we passed over 
uh, with barely a notion. I mean, look closely at verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly and then face to face. Now I know in part and then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. Part of the reason we miss it is because a translation can't be a translation and a commentary at the same time. So we have to dig a little deeper. This word translated, if you have a King James in front of you, I believe the word is darkly. And if you have an ESV, the Pew Bible, in front of you, uh, it is translated dimly. But darkness and dimness have to do with light. It's dim outside or it's dark or you can use it in some metaphorical uh, way. But nevertheless, in fact, it translates a Greek phrase, in enigmati. Hmm. That should trigger some recognition because it's right here, our very word enigma. So, Paul's intent here was to far more than to express frustration with not being able to see a clear reflection in a polished bronze mirror, which, oh, by the way, the Corinthians were most famous for. No, he was making a statement, a broad statement, about the very understanding of who we are as people, who we are in this world, and what we uh, will be in the world to come. Now, the, the key, one of the keys, at least, to understanding this metaphor here in verse 12 is the use of the word uh, through. Now, in some translations it says in, in others it says through. The word is through. And that's the interesting, one of the interesting things about this, because when you look at a mirror, and uh, I, uh, Barb and I had toyed with going and getting everybody a mirror so that you could look in the mirror, right? Then you could, when you, when you look at it, you actually look through it as if it were clear glass because it has depth which is not there. A mirror is simply a two-dimensional image. It's flat, right? And yet when you look at it, you look at it as if you were peering through clear glass onto through the other side. The reflection seeming that our eye is behind the mirror. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. And the difficulty with this entire metaphor is that it seems to be a mixed metaphor because the mirror conveys the notion of the image to the eye and so the translator uses a word like dimly or darkly and yet it's an enigma. An enigma doesn't appeal to the eye. It appeals to the ear. And yet later on, the Apostle Paul, in, uh, or actually earlier, he said that neither ear nor eye can fully represent the things that, which God hath prepared for them that love Him. I want to point out a fascinating thing because Paul's experience and understanding of the Scripture was so vast that he was actually alluding to another text found in Numbers 12.8. And in Numbers 12.8, we find uh, uh, the story of when Miriam and Aaron got really upset with Moses because he married a Cushite woman. And so they got upset and they started saying uh, things like, The Lord has spoken to us. 
just as He has spoken to Moses. Woo, sounds like the beginning of a little insurrection right there. So I'm as good as Moses. Aaron, by the way, you're as good as Moses. So why in the world do we need uh, Moses? Well, God heard this. And it upset him. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been called to the principal's office or you've ever been, you know, called down by, by someone. But the Lord says, hey, you three, come out of the meeting. Come out right now. Out of the tent of meeting. Come out. I want to talk to you. Can you imagine that? I mean, can you imagine the Lord by name, you know, get out there. I'm not sure I'd want to go. Or if I thought I was with somebody who was really good, I might hold on to him really tight, you know, lightning bolt and all that. Anyway, in this case, it was a leprosy bolt, if you know the story, right? So what happens is, is I want you to listen to what the Lord said. The Lord said to them, and you can turn to this later, you can, you can turn to this now. But the Lord said to them, essentially, yes, I spoke to you in visions and I spoke to you in dreams. But with Moses, I speak to him mouth to mouth, meaning face to face. That's the way they would express it. And I did not speak. Here's the key. The Corinthians were Greek. The Septuagint was Greek. The only scripture they knew was the Septuagint. The New Testament was being slowly added unto them, even with the the passage that they were reading. But he says, I did not speak to Moses, ude anigmaton, the same word. The exact same word. I didn't speak to Moses in enigmas. I spoke to him clearly. The Corinthians would not have missed this at all. They would have been completely familiar with it. So they would have begun to get some inkling of what Paul was talking about, about looking into a mirror and that being a reflection of an enigma. In fact, Paul goes back to this. He alludes to his own uh, passage here in 2 Corinthians when he said, Uh, He was talking to them about Moses and how Moses had to veil his face. But that when we turn to the Lord, the veil is removed and with unveiled face. And this word face becomes important as we move along through the message. Behold the glory of the Lord and we are transformed into that same image. What he's talking about is the Christian's progressive transformation, our lives being transformed by the Holy Spirit of God. So what we see in the mirror is our gradual transformation from who we were outside of Christ to who we are becoming with Christ, face to face, life with God. I mean, we look through the mirror and we suppose that we see our reflection and I suppose we do. Of course, everything is backwards, right? I mean, that's the whole point with, uh, with through the looking glass. When you go through the looking glass, everything is backwards. Everything is turned around. Right is wrong. Wrong is right. Everything is, is in disarray. And that's why when, you're, when you get an ambulance come up behind you, if you look at it, you don't know what it says. Boom, 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 You look out in the mirror and it says ambulance. Did you know that that was uh, uh, Da Vinci's code? Do you know what his code was? 
he wrote he he wrote his Italian or Latin or whatever it was backwards in a mirror. And you had to be really rich to have a mirror, oh, by the way. Mirrors weren't everywhere like they are today. You can turn your iPhone into a mirror. It's got a mirror mode. Check yourself out. Paul was not concerned about lousy mirrors. He was reflecting on the changing image in the mirror. Remember, they didn't have any film back then. They didn't have any cameras. They had no way to say to see a true representation of, of themselves. The very rich, they attempted to enshrine themselves, you know, in statues and portraits perhaps. But, they, you know, particularly with their youth and their strength and so forth. But the mirror itself testified against them that they were changing, that they were aging. It was telling them what they would become, that, that they were only temporal. But that which we see in the mirror is not even who we are. And this goes deeper into Paul's point. The mirror is what actually informs us that our handsome or our beautiful faces and strength and vigor dissipate in front of our very eyes. But it's far more. Our ideas and our notions about life change as well. From an earthly perspective, we are transient, we're temporal, we're provisional. In C.S. Lewis' work, and if you've ever read this, uh, you know, tap me on the shoulder after, afterwards because this is one of his more remote books and, and you deserve a coin or something. He wrote a book called Till We Have Faces. And it's a Greek metaphor. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a uh, story that's told in a, uh, a Greek mythical story form that until we can truly th- uh, see through our physical appearance into who we really are, into who our true nature is, God will not see us face to face because we don't have a face. I'm not talking about a physical face. Obviously, we have a physical face. But it's this face in the mirror. This face in the mirror is our transformed life into the image of Christ and His character imprinted upon us. So in the context... Try to take that mirror and make it a little more concrete for you. The mirror that Paul is talking about to see the transformed image is the mirror of love, which never changes. That's verse 8. Love, love never changes. Love is not going to go away. Even at the end when he says, and now abide these three, right? Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is this mirror which never changes. Our love changes. Our gifts may change. In fact, some gifts disappear altogether. But perfect love, which we cannot fully comprehend, we will one day see. And we will know ourselves as fully as we have been known by God, by Christ. This is an amazing thing. When we look in the mirror and we perceive the passage of time and the changes in our features, without Christ, what do we see? Actually, there's a famous old artist who did this, who drew a a woman sitting at a vanity, and yet if you take perspective and distance, it actually looks like a skull. Without Christ... 
without Christ, there is nothing but death. And yet when we look through the mirror in the permanence and the preeminence of love, we refuse to see that, that mortality as ending in annihilation, as ending in nothing, but rather in transformation. We reject the notion of being absorbed into some kind of cosmic force. And we will be an eye beyond the mirror on the other side of life with a personality as distinct as we have here. You know, I have often heard the question, you know, will I be able to recognize loved ones in heaven? I don't think that's the question. I don't think that's the greater mystery. I don't think it's your ability to recognize another in heaven as opposed to the glorious truth that when you go to heaven, you can say, behold, it is I. In other words, I exist. I still am someone who has the power to recognize. I am there. The words of the great poet Carlyle ring true. But tis an old belief that on some solemn shore behold the sphere or beyond the sphere of grief dear friends shall meet once more. That creed I fain would keep, that hope I'll not forgo, eternal sleep unless to waken so. In other words, there's life beyond the grain. Uh, beyond the grave, if you look into the mirror, you see the transitory nature of life and the riddles. All of us can say right now in our hearts, God, why did you allow that to happen? It makes no sense to me. And yet, when we look through the mirror, the eyes of faith and love and the permanence and the preeminence of love, what we should be seeing is the transforming, our image transforming into that of Christ. And that tells us that one day we, as He did, shall spring, spring from the grave. Because for what we see here and now, that is not all there is. For eternity, for eternity we will live and we will love and we will prosper under the mighty hand of God. I mean, while the light of the revelation of Christ allows us to see clearly uh, our immortality, the details uh, remain a mystery to us. As C.S. Lewis uh, wrote, going back to till we have faces, we don't even fully know who we are. We don't know who we are. And if you realize that's the very word that's used here, uh, gnosko, I know, this is the, the notion, and that's the word that's used here, uh, that we know who we are, and when the perfect comes, we shall, and there's a different word that's used, we shall know fully, and that's how come the translations that you have said use the word fully generally because that's what it means. There's a fullness to that. I mean, right now we know that we are children of the King. We know that. 
But how often do we spend our time as if we were paupers, beggars? Oh, God, give me this, and God, help me with that, and God, this, and, and so forth and so on. And we don't recognize our full place. Epigonosco is the word. We, we act like we're begging for the tiniest bits of bread. We desire to see the great mysteries that Paul spoke of earlier, but they elude us. They are beyond our grasp. Let me say a little bit more about looking into the mirror of the permanence of love. The great Roman orator Seneca wrote this about mirrors. He said, For a single one of these mirrors of silver or gold inlaid with gems, women are capable of spending an amount equal to the dowry the state once offered to generals' daughters. In other words, mirrors were hard to come by. They were hard to come by. The best ones were made out of silver. And the ancient Greeks, though, they had this uh, super... But um, you could still get a good look at yourself, right? How many of you have ever had looked into still water? You know, if the lighting is just right, you get a pretty good look, yeah? And so they could still do that. The ancient Greeks, though, had a, a superstition that if you looked at your reflection, uh, you were going to have a bad day. It might even be fatal. If you saw yourself, there are some places today, this very day, around the world where you better be careful where you take out a camera. And it's not because of state secrets. It's because of this notion about the person's reflection being captured. And this is seen in the story of Narcissus. You know who Narcissus was. We actually use a word all the time. Most of us don't really know what it means, narcissist. But nevertheless, you have this this uh, fellow, the story of Narcissus. Did you know when he was born? When he was born, it was prophesied about him that he would live a long and prosperous life provided that he never came to know himself. Isn't that interesting? Guess what? Same word. Gnosko. Same, exact same word here, as long as he didn't know, come to know himself. And now uh, Narcissus had a bit of a, he was a bit of a problem child. He was. He did some really stupid stuff. Major stupid stuff. And so Hera, you know, she's connected with Zeus or one of those other mythological characters. Uh, she set him up so that he would stop because he was thirsty to get a drink and look at this uh, pool of water that she made so that it was a perfect reflecting pond. And so he goes to get some water, and he looks down there, and he sees this image, and he immediately falls in love. Now, if you know anything about him, he hadn't fallen in love with anybody before, even though he had a lot of suitors. But nevertheless, no, 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 no. So he fell in love with himself. And so at first, this pool is so clear that he tries to kiss himself, embrace himself, and so forth. He doesn't realize it's a reflection. It's only later that he goes, Oh, ooh, that's me. And so I'll never have me. And so he starves himself to death there. Right? Yeah. Did you know the story? Uh, there's a whole other part of an echo that I won't tell you, but echo was involved too. Anyway, so what you have there is this... He, he starved to death by this uh, pool, pining for himself. 
And the, the, say, what in the world does it have to do with our text? It does. It's amazing, in fact, because the Apostle Paul uses, again, the precise same word to know, referencing us in verse 12. Is this not our story? If you look into the mirror and you only see yourself, you will find no sustenance, you will find no meaning, you will find no future, only death. That's all you'll find. Because you are all that there is. Oh yeah, you have some awareness that there are other people around you, but you don't really connect with them, not in the way that God intends. They're just other people out there. They're not you. You're the one. You're the center of the universe. It's only through Christ that we have anything. One more word about mirrors. Last Monday, uh, Barbara and I visited Carlsbad Caverns on the way back home. And while we were there, I noted a young couple that were in a fight with each other. And, uh, and, and so, I don't know, they couldn't have been married too long, but they were, they were struggling. They were really angry. I mean, most people uh, who fight all the time used to be best friends. It's true. And some people who fight all the time still are. They just have to have moments of, like, silence. It might be an hour. It might be a day. It might be a week. Months. But anyway, your spouse or your friend says something that really gets to you. You feel attacked. You feel devalued. You feel disrespected. And you react. You know, maybe you raise your voice. Maybe you slam the door. Maybe you walk out, speed up the car. In more cases than I care to rehearse, somebody's fist goes through the wall. Or in, in my situation when I was growing up, especially something was flying through the air. And, and so, you know, and perhaps you do the opposite and shut down. Now, just not going to communicate. Refuse to continue the discussion or the conversation. I mean, and when you look back on it, you can look back on this in your own life. When you look back on it, most of the time you go, what, what was that all about? I don't know. I don't even remember. We call this an argument. Baloney. Baloney. Call it a fight. Call it what it is. Because what happens is, is when you're threatened, you know, when, you're, when something about you uh, socially or intellectually or character or height or appearance or whatever all else, ego, whatever gets threatened, we fall to the fight, flight, freeze. That's what we do. There, it's all in those categories. Yeah, I mean, you can look and see what's happening. Oh, they're freezing, they're flighting, you know, they're fleeing, whatever. Here we go, here it all is. And so you, when, you, when you understand that, you understand that an argument is entirely a different thing. A fight's based on physiology and psychology. An argument's based on something else altogether. And that is, you have to understand, you've got to look at a mirror. According to the ancients, the best mirror, mirrors possible were made out of silver. And silver that would be polished to such a, a high point, and actually they would be folded over and over again. The way the Japanese sword maker uh, uh, makes the uh, katana sword, where you can have like millions of layers. Sounds outrageous, but it's true. Because that's the only way you can get all the impurities out. And so the silver, you're going to look at a mirror, it has to have all the impurities out. So they would fold the silver such 
that it would uh, that would be so. So when you looked at a silver mirror and it was polished, you could actually see all the concentric circles leading to a very tiny one, which <laughs> had you in the center of it. But nevertheless, what's the silver? What's the word for silver? Some of you engineering type or chemical engineers, what's the uh, what's the table of elements? Silver. A G. Okay, which comes through us the Greek. Actually, the Greek actually for silver is uh, argurus, which goes to the Latin as argue, and the process of argurusing is argumenting until finally it comes to us as argument. The truth is, is an argument is to polish what you're saying so clearly the enigma is gone, and what you see in the reflection is the very reality before you. And that is what Paul is saying, is that that one day, that mirror will be so perfectly polished and so clear that in fact it will be gone and we will see Him face to face. I argue that for the Christian, the reflection in the mirror we see should not be the observer it should be the image of Christ being con- us being conformed to the image of Christ and Him making us able to be face to face. As I close, I want to look at a song which I really uh, has... I don't know how it, some songs develop traction through the years. Usually a song you'll like for a year or six months or maybe a couple of years if it's really good. If it's your song, yeah, you might keep it for longer than that. But this song was amazing. It's called I Can Only Imagine. And it's, the, it's, it's words that has to do with the thoughts of a man uh, about what it would be like to stand face to face before God. And he says... I can only imagine. I can only imagine what it will be like. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I don't think we do enough imagining these days. Most of our days are totally focused on the here and now, the troubles that we have. But there is a day for those of us who believe when once again we will walk in the garden face to face with our Lord because Christ is died for us. The future of love is guaranteed. In this transient existence, we only have imperfect knowledge, but when the perfection comes in heaven, the imperfect will fall away. Indirect reflections will be replaced by seeing face to face and partial knowledge will give way to full knowledge. And we will know ourselves fully as we have been fully known. And guess what? We're going to know Him too. Permanence is only given to faith, to hope, and to love. But the greatest 
of those three is love. Father, we are grateful for the many mercies, the graces that you have shown to us. Lord, as we as we peer into the mirror of love, there is truly only one thing to see because there is only one thing that's reflected in the mirror of love. And that is your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that we would be able to take and pursue through the power of your Holy Spirit living lives worthy of your calling, being transformed day to day through your Spirit. We ask that you would grant these mercies to us. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.